listening to the Food Talk Show. Hi there, my name is Sue Nelson and for the next half hour or so, we're going to be talking all things food and drink. As usual, I'm joined by my fellow presenter, Ollie Lloyd, founder of Great British Chefs and head of client at Hearst Publications. How are you? I'm very well. Big fat jumper on today, not one of your flashy Paul Smith shirts. Oh, it is? No, it's it's sort of, yeah, I've got dinosaurs on today. Dinosaurs on your shirt. Dinosaur skeletons. Yeah, keep... It's extinction. It's it's an extinction message. Keep your cardigan, we're fine. And um, Holly Shackleton, editor of Speciality Food magazine. Hi, Holly. Hello. How are you? Hi, good, thank you. Good. We've got two um, great guests, as usual. So we've got um, Jiho Park from Eton. As in, not in Eton, the, the posh boarding school, <laughs> Eton, E-A-T-E-N. Yes. Hi, Jiho. Hi. And Theodora Alexander of Young Foodies. Hi. You all right? Yeah, very good, well, thanks. Good. thanks for having us. Good. Um, before we um, talk to our guests and find out what they'll be doing, um, I've got a few questions to ask of our, of our lovely co-presenters here. So, Holly, just for you first. Your best donut, your favourite donut, um, where would you get it from? Where would I you would advise our it. listeners to go? I would get it from uh, Crosstown Bakery, Crosstown mm-hmm. Donuts, mm-hmm. Uh, jam and peanut butter donut. That's the one that you told me off about. You have been telling me <laughs> off about for the past month. It was yeah. one donut. You see, the thing is, um, it's actually peanut butter and berry donut. Berry, is it? And it is my favourite too. Is it? <laughs> yeah. Oh, so you can't you can't tell me off no, about it? No, not really. No, it's it's, um, it's so good. It is very good. What? It's a treat. It's a it is treat. a treat. Yeah, it's a little but... treat. Ollie, best donut. I, I'm going to be pretentious. Street, right. street stall in Morocco. Because, <laughs> you know, when you actually have them That's fried cool. on the side of the road, done like that, they're just different. And I, I'm not into this whole stuffing, putting things in, Dunkin' Donuts, like, just, no. no. Well, Give me sugar and donut. Proper fairground ones. Oh, no. Really, it's still really hot, no, where you're kind of burning your fingers. Yeah, and, no, yeah, disgusting. They're really because good can, as well. They've got horrible stale fat. You can, it's a horrible The oil taste is good, but the texture. Oh, makes, mm. makes me shudder. Do you like that coated in sugar or not? Coated in sugar. Coated in sugar. Mm. Mm. But we're going to tell you why we're asking these questions in a minute. Um, now, when I used to live in Altrincham, just outside Manchester, we used to trot down the road, a bit of a hangover, and uh, best cheese toasty ever was Cafe Pronto. This Italian guy used to run it and then his English wife and they just used to argue the whole time. They just shout at each other. It was brilliant. Just sit there and just watch them arguing all the time. Basically, he used to do not much at all. Just go around being Italian. She used to be in the kitchen really working up. Oh, God, she did the most amazing cheese and ham toasty. So my favourite cheese toasty is Cafe Pronto, mm. Hale Road, Altrium. Ollie, yours will be posh, won't it? be middle class. Totally. Um, <laughs> St John's Bread and Wine. Of course oh. it is. Yeah. You know, because they describe just, it. They sort of well. I mean, I've had. I think. I, to be honest, it's not something I really order very often because I can kind of make them at home. Um, but I think that I think the ones I've had there have always been, you know, different cheeses. You know, good amounts of of stuff on the side, whether that's sauerkraut or mustard or other stuff. It's just, and and the quality of the bread there is exceptional for me. It's about the bread as well. Told you it'd be posh, Holly. Bring us down um, to earth. Yeah, I'm going to bring the tone down massively. Good. Good. So my favourite, I'm sorry to say, is uh, you know Tesco have the Harrison Hall coffee shops. No, I don't. Right, so Tesco have don't have them coffee shops, which are called Harrison Hall, um, and they're in um, 
Stansted Airport as well, very good. Um, and the toasty is basically so covered in cheese, so much cheese, that it's basically <laughs> like cheese soup. Just so, that's, yeah, two slices of bread have just soaked up. It's so good and it's so punchy. I think there's loads of mustard and things in there. So it's, none What's of it favorite? will be particularly good quality, but it's just so cheesy. Just the combination. Yeah. Mm. Next one. Uh, best Sunday roast. Unruly pig, Randall Trim, Suffolk. You didn't even... Wow, that was fair. You just went straight in there. I love it there. Do you? What's yes. it, so what do they do? Explain. Just everything's really, really good quality, locally sourced, amazing chefs. And I think everything has a really good foodie, chefy, inside knowledge touch, which is, I think, a step beyond like a, you know, normal pub roast. And it's very good value as well. I really recommend it. See, I think Sunday roast is very hard to do uh, mm. in a pub or restaurant because it, because of the timing thing. Mm. It's really, really hard. Uh, Ollie, yours? Probably the Duke of Cambridge, owned by the guys behind Riverford. All right. It's one of the locals mm. where we live. I really like uh, the Harwood Arms, Fulham. Oh. Gorgeous. If you can get in. Well, quite difficult. The, and the old head chef they used to work for is Great British Chefs. Didn't he? Yeah, she. 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 And she's married to a Michelin three-star chef. the only double Michelin star couple. But they argue when they're in the kitchen at home. Well, he's a three star and she's a one star. So. Oh, but oh. I wouldn't. I wouldn't fight with Sally. I would not. Final one: best sushi. Uh, so, if I was going to be pretentious and to wrap back to the first statement, it would be the sushi donuts in um, sushi Sydney donuts. Sydney um, Fish Market, where they actually make a donut of rice and then drop the sushi at the top. The kids went nuts for it. It was insane and amazing. Um, but in London, dinings. Dinings. Dinings, which is um, a really, it's in an old urinal uh, <laughs> off Marlborough High Street. And uh, it's, um, it's like, it's where, it's where a lot of the chefs go. Right. It's pretty, it's, and it's not, it's not, it's high end, but it's not pretentious. Holly, do they have sushi in Sussex? Has it gone up there yet? <laughs> to be honest, they don't really. Tesco's. And the last time. Do they have in Tesco's? <laughs> Holly's favourite sushi is Tesco's. Uh, <laughs> so, it real no, they the have. <laughs> So Waitrose, the only place that I know of to get it in Suffolk or near me is there's a wait, there's a fresh sushi counter at my local Waitrose, mm. but it made me ill like three or four years ago. <laughs> so you've been put off. <laughs> so I haven't had it for three or four years. Well and done, you Waitrose. Just, you just don't get That's it. Not in. really a recommendation. Well, no, because I had it the next day, <laughs> and I feel like that should that should be okay. But uh, but no, I got quite poorly. But the one time the one time I enjoyed sushi was in Switzerland. Um, and I can't. They're not exactly fine for sushi, are they? The no, it was just weird. It was the first time that I tried sushi, um, and I don't know the name of the place. It was in the city of Lugano, um, and I enjoyed it. There you go. So, and not ill. Minimal experience of sushi, I'm afraid. My favourite is pretentious Rocker, Charlotte oh, Street. Lovely. Really can't like go wrong. There. Good yeah. cocktails as well. Very good cocktails, yeah. and I like sitting at the bar and watching them yeah, make agreed. it. It's, it's a bit of theatre. Really quite like that. That's the last meal we ever had before our son was born. My wife actually walked out of the hospital <laughs> with still with 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 the drip thing in her hand, and we sat there at the bar and had sushi. It was phenomenal. <laughs> the last meal Why we ever ate. Why would anybody be married to you, Ollie? <laughs> she, it was Why? her idea. That's where she wants to go. I can't believe you're still married. That's the know, thing that I find years. amazing. <laughs> so, um, Jiho Park is uh, he's the sort of founder of Eaton, which is an app. And the reason why I'm asking these questions, as you will know, Jiho, of course, is that your app can tell you what the best cheese toasty is, as voted by the users. So, right. the best cheese toasty, apparently. You're all wrong. It's at uh, Meltsmith's near the Gherkin. 
You didn't even know that yourself, did you, Gio? Doesn't surprise <laughs> me, though. It is a very good cheese toasty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and also, according to your app, the best donut is classic vanilla um, from Bread Ahead on Borough Market. I would like to please rescind my original the... statement. Bread they Ahead. Do, uh, they salted do... caramel. Salted caramel. Is that yeah. the one with a bit of honeycomb? Mm. Oh, Yeah. That's good. Yeah, and the praline one as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Bread Ahead. Mm-hmm. And the best Sunday roast, um, according to our app, is Blacklock. In Shoreditch, which I've never been to, so it oh, makes I. me want to go. Blacklock. Mm. You should. It's amazing. Yeah. Mm. Is it a pub? Uh, no, it's a, it's a restaurant that specializes in roast. Mm. So any day of the week you can go there and have <gasps> a big plate of mixed meats. Yeah. Yeah, Tuesday it. roast, exactly. Tuesday roast. <laughs> yeah. And the best sushi, hot stone steak and sushi bar in Islington. That's right. Which is a personal favorite. Do you not know that? Well. Is that the one that's right by the sit by the um, by screen on the green? Uh, no, it's actually in Chapel Market. Oh yeah, Chapel Market, uh-huh. around the bank. So not far from there, but it's mm. uh, yeah, it's an right. incredible place. The the chef um, used to be the head chef at uh, Tsukiji, which is in the the Westbury Hotel in Mayfair. Before that, he was at Zuma and Nobu. Oh, I this see. This is a local so restaurant. Yeah. You didn't even know yeah. I could walk there. Yeah. Honestly, so it's called Hot Stone <laughs> Steak. <laughs> Dinner sorted. Hot Stone Steak and Sushi Bar, Chapel Market. It's literally around the corner from your old Correct. office, actually. It is. Yeah. yeah. Um, so um, just just explain to us, Jiho, why have you done this app, Eaton? I mean, it, it sort of makes sense to me. You know, I'm sort of, what do I fancy yeah. today? I fancy, <laughs> oh, I'll have a look and see where I can get the best one of those in my vicinity. Was, yeah. that, was, that, was that the thinking behind it? Well, it, actually, the, what we've just had a little chat about is one of the perfect examples of why this kind of platform works. Um, I'll give you a little backstory about how we started and how the idea came about. Actually, my co-founder, Tim, uh, a few years ago, went on a road trip to the continent. He was in Brussels, and on the way back on Sunday, uh, they were driving back, and he and his, his girlfriend decided to stop in Lille on a Sunday afternoon. And as you may be aware, Sunday afternoons in France are often very quiet. Lots of restaurants are closed. It was a very hot day, so they said, okay, let's go have some ice cream. And Tim's favorite is raspberry sorbet. So they went online, uh, standing on a street corner, and started doing searches for raspberry sorbet. But actually, interestingly enough, you actually cannot search for raspberry sorbet, specifically. You might get lucky and find some kind of a hit somewhere on something somebody had written, but the, the review platforms, the incumbent ones that pop up, which we know, which might be TripAdvisor, Google, Yelp, all of these actually treat the restaurant as the product, mm. right? They don't treat the food as a product. They treat the restaurant as a product. So they went on there and they, they tried to search and, and TripAdvisor had a, a few restaurants or sorry, ice cream parlors, but they were all three and a half stars. So that information didn't really help him very much. Um, he kept looking and finally they went to blogs and everything is in French, um, which was fine because actually Tim's partner is French. So they spent about half an hour reading through these blogs. It must and have been to find... desperate for raspberry well, sorbet. Yeah. <laughs> desperate. Exactly. Or, or any good yeah, ice cream just, shop. Just, which... Does he always do that, this much research when making a decision? Because <laughs> yeah. it must take him a very long time to get yeah. dressed in the morning, for example. <laughs> but, you know, so, so they went through that whole, whole process. And in the end, they, they couldn't find uh, raspberry <laughs> sorbet specifically because that information is not actually available. So they ended up picking a restaurant. Uh, sorry, I keep saying restaurant, but they picked an ice cream parlor, which was only 100 meters away. And they said, OK, let's just go there. Let's let's keep, go see. Keep my fingers crossed. Yeah. So they went there and, you know, Tim kind of scurried to the 
front of the queue just to have a look and he realized that there actually was raspberry sorbet there. So they went back, they, they stood in that queue, he got to the front, he had a taste and oh my God, it was the best raspberry sorbet he'd ever had. And at that moment, he had kind of this aha moment where he thought to himself, why did it take me so long to find this? You know, why in today's day and age with all the technology we have, why can't you just, you know, find that information with a snap instantly on your phone? And so that is how the idea for this started. He, uh, on the drive back, he started hashing out ideas. Um, and he's a developer by, by trade. And so that was lucky. Yeah, that was very lucky. <laughs> and, um, and so he started that. He left his job. He started that. We ended up meeting in a co work space. So, a uh, little point for co work spaces. These things actually work. <laughs> and we started hashing out this idea together and, and discussing it more. Um, and uh, that was about two and a half, almost three years ago, and here we are today. So I just went on to, you know, the normal thing, the, the app store, and just downloaded it and was playing with it, and that's that's all you need to do, isn't it? That's it. That's it. It's, free. it's as simple as that. It's free for, there. yep, it's free for, for users, it's free for restaurants. Um, restaurants can manage, they can own and manage their their page within profile. the yeah, yeah. within the profile. Um, and we have both the app version as well as an online website version. So that kind of thing is easy for restaurants to do. So, so Thea, uh, we're going to come on to you later in terms of Young Foodies, which which you you co-founded. Um, but you you are a bit of an expert on on sort of new businesses and starting up in the food space. What do you think of that? I think it's amazing. Um, I think of it as a consumer as well, um, and I can completely see the need because I'm a very simple person. I look for a burger, and I just want to know where to go for the burger. And I do think food first, not restaurant first. Um, it's just so blindingly obvious somehow. Yeah, it? yeah, like it is. But then, that, yeah, they're the best ideas, aren't they? And and I can understand why the world is set up the way it is now, but it doesn't make sense. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. So, so how? So, what's your journey now? I mean, I think I think you need personally. My my view of the app is it needs a bit more population yet. Obviously, yeah. it's dependent on people. Yeah. So doing reviews and 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 user engagement, of course. But mm -hmm. and how are you going to scale that up? So we have <clears throat> two types of user. One is the kind of person who goes on there to search, and that is of course the majority of our users. Mm -hmm. And then we have um, uh, people who review, which is Ollie. You should be on there. Reviewing posts. Oh, yes. Yeah. Don't you think? Please. I just, my friends keep saying to me, are you actually doing any work? You're just posting your lunch shots. <laughs> <laughs> you are exactly the kind yeah. of user that we would love yeah, to have. Yeah, somebody that's informed really, you know, travels a lot, <laughs> yeah. has to eat, you know. Has to, has to, has to eat. As uh, part thank you of for the, saying it No, but way. as part of the, your job, yeah, no, review sure. stuff, you should be on there. So should Holly, actually. Mm -hmm. So should Especially you. Especially the donut section. Yeah. So should you. Yeah, I should too. Yeah. 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 So, so yeah, so since we um, made our official launch here in London last December, uh, sorry, December of the year before, so it's been about a year, um, we are now at about 25,000 users, um, around 120,000 reviews. Those reviews come from 33,000 restaurants, which come from 120 countries. And, and just as you mentioned, Sue, um, what we find is a lot of people, you know, when they review something, they really love to review and share also the things that they ate when they were traveling. So that's one of the ways that our our Can platform, work. yeah, has, has and, and sorry. sorry, is is it because one of the things I find very problematic about the restaurant reviewing space is, is that I always say that I don't believe any chef wakes up in the morning and says I'm going to serve a, a shit meal. Mm -hmm. um, they actually generally try and do the best they can. Mm -hmm. Is are people only really putting up things that they loved? So it's kind of a positive space in terms of people share like this is a great burger. They're not saying this is a rubbish burger. Mm -hmm. So. 
you're, you're right. I mean, no chef wants to create terrible food, right? But everybody has their opinions. And, of course. And one of the, the, the problems and the reasons why restaurants and chefs don't get along with some of the other review platforms that are out there is that because those reviews are about a, a, a huge mashup of different things, mm. right? You know, one review might be about uh, the restaurant being too cold. One might be about the waiter taking too long to bring the bill. One might be an issue with the toilets. You know, these are not reviews about the food, the food. And, and the actual thing that chefs can control. Yep. Right? So that presents a problem in itself. So, you know, when that, that's, there's two problems there. One is that when somebody is searching for something good to eat, they come across a review like that, and that gives them no information about, about the primary goal, which is to eat good food at a restaurant. So by making the reviews such as on our platform, dish-based, you know, when a... Uh, it really focuses, it homes in on it. Exactly. And, and therefore, the chef can see all of the reviews about each individual dish that they've had. Now, every chef that I know, um, if they see that, say, seven dishes are fantastically rated, and then a few maybe are not so good, you know... Even a chef can understand, it. yeah, they're they're okay, it. maybe yeah. there needs to be such change there. Maybe we need to take that off. Mm -hmm. Maybe they knew already based on sales that, that that particular item wasn't doing quite as well. And that's the kind of feedback that we have found um, that chefs in, actually can handle and, and appreciate. Mm -hmm. And how do you stop somebody from abusing the system? Yeah. How can you feel to that? I mean, I, I, I sometimes trip advice. Yeah, that's why I mean. Yeah, about, yeah. Um, I mean, fake reviews are, are an issue on, on these platforms. I mean, we've heard lots of... Uh, stories and there have been certainly lots of uh, big articles in the press about how people were able to to fake the system and um, but night so 99% of our reviews have a picture a user generated picture that goes along with it um, and and uh, and also when a review is made so for instance say that so you love cheese toasties, right? I do. Yeah, I can. you've got that right. <laughs> and and you've reviewed 500 cheese toasties, so. Naturally, wouldn't it make more sense for your reviews of cheese toasties to perhaps be more, uh, more weighted, yep, or or more trusted? Actually, that's the word I should use. That more trusted because than somebody I'm a somebody, cheese toasty aficionado yeah, than somebody who's reviewed literally one, one cheese yeah, toasty. Yeah, yeah. So those are ways that you know our system inherently is built to combat those kinds of so things. So you use sort of AI to, and you've built that into the system, have you? To yeah, there there is a, there is a, an algorithm. That mm. exists. That which actually that is one of the things that took the majority of the of the time to develop during that three years that we've mm. been doing this. Um, but but we've you know we knew that fake reviews could be an issue from the beginning, right? So other review platforms, fake reviews are something that happened while those platforms were in existence. From the onset, we knew that that is something that needs to be taken care of. So we've built those things mm. into place to to combat that. I mean, if somebody wanted to really. You know, spread negativity about a certain restaurant they would have to create a profile you know review 50 of those similar things for instance uh, in order for that score that's, to that's really a lot make of effort, yeah, that's a lot of effort yeah. plus we also moderate things um, on our real-time basis uh, there are actually humans who go through these it's pretty easy to see when something is a, a fake review mm. pretty good idea I great great idea great idea, great idea. I need to get on there and do some reviews. Let's do yes, that. please. Yeah, <laughs> and and uh, we, obviously we're going to have lots of information on the Food Talk website, um, and and I presume you just encourage anybody to use the app and get involved. Yeah, I mean, I need to find out, you know, where to get the best cheese toasty wherever we, I am. We, absolutely, I mean, we'd love to really change um, 
how people eat all around the world. Um, it's something that, you know, we have lots of changing food trends these days. People are into veganism. You know, people have gluten-free requirements, flexitarianism, all of these things and, and all of these other platforms. They're not able to, to actually tell you that information because the data that's collected is not at that level. It's mm -hmm. not about each dish. It's just a general mashup review. So by, by collecting that data, we're able to help you know, users, diners, um, very find the, the best things. Yeah, yeah, yeah very I mean, even if to go to a restaurant and and find out what the best thing to eat is there, or what the best things that you can eat yeah. are at that place. That's that's what we'd like to genius. provide for people. Well done, Jihan. Thank you. Genius. <laughs> Obviously, we'll have um, lots of information on the website. So, um, thank you for that. And thank it's you. called Eaton. E A T E N. That's right. Um, FMCG. Slightly swiveling, changing the subject here. Yeah, good. So. FMGCG stands for? Fast Moving Consumer Goods. Yeah, which sounds Good. now incredibly old-fashioned. Sounds about 30 years out of date as a, as a, as a, as a sort of moniker. Um, you used to work in what was traditionally classified as FMCG. Yep. Classic Can you explain FMCG. exactly what it was perhaps then? I suppose it was... In the a, 1950s a, when you worked Yeah, in, 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 <laughs> before the war when I was a brand manager, yeah, and we were selling soap. No, so, yeah, so I started at Unilever selling soap and working on, on GIF and, and, and other brands, or SIF as we renamed it. Um, essentially, it was a group of brands and businesses that were producing high-volume products that were demanded by consumers. And in the end, they were exactly what I said. They were fast-moving, so they had high turns in retail. They were the kind of items that you put on shelf and they went out of stock quickly. So a lot of it was about stock management about getting stuff out there, about really, you know, efficient supply chains, the ability to mass produce things. It's massively about logistics. It, I mean, it, you couldn't be in that space unless you really sorted out all of the yeah. logistics. It's logistics and branding fundamentally. Yeah. It's those two things. And it's about, you know, we all spend our Volume. time talking about, you know, price and positioning and placement and, you know, all the kind of classics of marketing of getting something on shelf that turned quickly. And that's what it was about because in the end, your supplier, you sold into the big retailers, the Tesco's and the Sainsbury's of this world. And it was about, could you produce an item that sold quickly? And volume, 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 volume. Vo volume. And, and typically low price, uh, you know, in the scheme of things. Yeah. Mm. And, and that's changed so much with, with the with the onset of, of you know, just to talk about two massive trends. One, the arrival and power of retailers producing their own fast moving consumer goods, which is, you know, huge because they dominate most categories nowadays. But they certainly didn't in the late 90s. And I think the arrival, particularly in the world of food, of, you know, some really interesting sort of game changers. Hmm. And um, Thea, so um, Theodora Alexander of Young Foodies, you actually started in FMCG in, in, in a way, didn't you? And so did your business partner. Uh, uh, popcorn was your speciality. That's right. Yeah, we uh, we were rivals in the world of popcorn. So I was at a brand called Propercorn um, through its kind of growth phase. So I started when it was a real kind of startup trying to almost change consumer thinking around popcorn being outside of the cinema. Um, and Chris, my co-founder, was at Metcalf, which was our arch rival. Of course. So we're very close now. We're co-founders, but we hated each other back then. <laughs> In fact, we didn't talk. Um, but a perfect but example. did you know each other? We knew of each other. Oh. We saw each other from across the room, but we didn't speak. Um, but a perfect example of kind of a category that didn't exist back then yeah. and a world, you know, this was, I don't know, eight years ago. 
um, a completely different world now where it's in every single major retailer. Which is hard to believe when you think about it because it, I, I can't even remember where you used to be able to get popcorn. It wasn't a thing you could buy. The cinema. No, it was really cinema. unusual. Yeah. You just It was just something you had when you watched a film. And, and it was an education thing entirely, just mm. changing the consumer perception of a clean snack. Well, and that's the thing that's really interesting is it was very much a dirty snack that yeah. you had in the cinema where you saw, you know, weird stuff, butter pumped on it from a dispenser. <laughs> yeah, that's true, right? actually. From that's some your, that's weird your, you know, machine. That... Some weird machine. And what was that butter? To a world where actually the number of kids I see eating bags of, of popcorn yeah. nowadays is... Because it's perceived as healthy. Because it's perceived as healthy versus mm. crisps. Mm. So you both, in essence, succeeded. Uh yeah, and then I mean, you I both mean, left. We the both left. World. Yeah. We, so, so why would you contact your arch nemesis? So we went for a coffee after we both left, and we were we were actually both consulting in different kind of spheres. So we were both working with startups. Uh, Chris focusing on supply chain, me doing a bit of supply chain consulting, and also some more kind of broader business strategy consulting. And we just a friend of ours said, "You guys should go for a coffee," um, even though you hate each other. And we went for a coffee and it was the first time we'd actually spoken, which is unbelievable because we basically had the same job for so long. Um, And it's a perfect example of had we just spoken while we were working, life would have been so much easier for both of us. Both of us going through exactly the same challenges, trying to deal with burnt kernels and difficulties with manufacturing and things like that. And, And But we went for a coffee and actually realised we had very similar values and very similar opinions of the world. But you, but you've both got excellent experience uh, in a way. You know, okay, it's popcorn, but but it, it could be anything in that in, in that field really. And going through all of that, you know, seeing a product all the way through from being something that's you know sort of niche, all of a sudden it becomes mainstream. All the, all the experience and things you learn from that. Um, so you both had that experience. Tell me a little bit about uh, young foodies, um, because a lot of people who go into to making whatever it is, in in terms of food sector, have no FMCG or, or, or any experience at all, and that actually that is quite tough. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's FMCG is a and actually to some degree consumer is incredibly unique because unlike I don't know fintech or prop tech or some of these other big booming industries, FMCG new businesses tend to be founded by people who've never worked in the industry before, but they make an amazing product. Um, So I make the best brownie. I'm going to sell it in my farm shop. It might then turn into the best selling brownie in that farm shop and then we can scale it up. And the kind of bigger macro forces in the industry at play, things like the rise of Aldi and Lidl, things like um, all the major retailers looking for distinctiveness and new things and ways to differentiate themselves all of these forces is actually meaning that those startups can do really well. Um, well, just um, you know, removing plastic at the moment, and and some of the green initiatives that the yeah. big supermarkets are forced to do actually because of consumer. Yeah, um, it, and the needs it, it raises a real opportunity, doesn't it? It does, and the needs of the consumer, the kind of the new consumer, the future consumer, are just different to the traditional FMCG consumer needs. So. That means they want things that are new and they want them now. And that's something that, I don't know, Kellogg's can't respond to. But, but they can, can, but not quickly. Not quickly. <laughs> um, and, and so, yeah, it's a fascinating world because you have all these consumers effectively starting businesses who've never done it before, um, going through the same challenges, the same mistakes and the same learnings. Um, 
And conveniently, they're learnings that Chris and I and actually our entire network have now been through enough times to, to be able to help. Yeah. And FMCG really, I suppose, used to exist in, in, in a world where you would do the big shop. Um, uh, wouldn't wouldn't it, Ollie? Where where you know you would go along with a trolley once a week and get all of your your food and your your household goods in one go. That model's broken down a bit as well, though, which which is even more you know throwing a hand grenade into the into that sector. That has changed, but I think actually in some ways one of the bigger trends is is the sort of the other end of the spectrum is the demand end of it and how you generate that. Because in the old days. You know, one of the things that allowed the Unilevers and the Procter & Gamble's and the Nestle's to maintain a stranglehold in the market was they were the only people who could afford TV advertising. Mm. And fundamentally, when the only route to market was, I'm going to run a 30-second TV market or I'm going to run, you know, a massive print campaign, it was kind of, there were huge barriers to entry to create new brands. Mm. Nowadays, the fact of the matter is, is that people like Pip and Nut, people like, you know, Willie's Cacao, these brands are capable of creating stardom and, and traction through a combination of social media, much more segmented marketing, much more laser targeted around different consumer groups, different distribution strategies. It's just a different world and you can pick things off. Whereas, you know, the old world, which is, you know, you're talking about the, the shopping end of it, where mm. yes, it was one big shop. Now that's proliferated, but the media is also proliferated. proliferated. So you get yeah, these yeah. two ends of it where actually suddenly the market's opened up, mm. which is kind of a great playing field. See, though, the problem is that, that that despite the advantages you might have as, as, as being a fast mover and, and, and capable of disruption in this market, nine out of 10 food businesses fail. I mean, that is just a bald fact. And, and uh, that's probably not going to change anytime soon, is it? No. Um, <laughs> it's been really mean, be, isn't it? But No, and to be honest, <coughs> there's, an, there's an argument that as more and more food businesses come to the market, that will only grow. Um, it's not about kind of there being a huge proliferation proliferation of food startups it's more about how do we support the winners and the challenges to actually succeed and that's what young foodies is about so we don't see a world where you have you know hundreds of thousands of brands selling in tesco we see a world where the best brands sell in tesco and it's not about buying the shelf space it's not about uh win it spending the most on media to win it's about creating the best product and the best brand and cutting through as a result which is what the independent food sector is so good at. Yeah, I think. absolutely. That's what I was just thinking. It's just, um, I don't know, these consumer trends are kind of coming from interested foodies or people who are conscientious about sustainability or, you know, supporting the younger guy or the, the smaller guys rather than the FMCG players. Um, they're naturally going to be shopping at the independents. Mm. Um, so the independents are a perfect kind of platform for these smaller brands to be cutting their teeth really and, and getting that kind of dedicated consumer base. Um, and it's the perfect place to spread the message as well because, you know, the people working in these shops and founding these shops have a passion about, you know, the same thing. And they're inclined to help you. Yeah, exactly. Um, um, so uh, this is a huge generalisation, of course, Thea, but it would make much more sense to... Um, what I would describe as do a soft launch when you're you're starting off. So you do get your logistics. You have to wear so many hats, don't you, as a, yeah. as, a, as, a, as a business owner? You know, so you get your logistics right, you get your packaging right, you get, a, you know, the whole bunch of your marketing, like your branding, your pricing. Um, it would make more sense to do it with some some small independents in the first place that, that may be prepared to help you through that learning before you 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 aim to get into some, some multinational. And that, that's a pretty tough place to start because if you fail at that, you it's game over really yeah and actually more and more what well, historically brands always did so 
there's always been this kind of well-trodden path in FMCG. So you start in kind of your local deli or farm shop, you go into a few more, then you maybe go into Selfridges or Harvey Nicks, um, Ocado, Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Tesco, etc. And you practice basically and you scale up. I think the response the way in which retail is changing and specifically the way in which certain supermarkets are looking to find brands earlier in their life has kind of thrown that a little bit, um, which is really, really risky for everyone. Um, For the supermarket, it's risky because it means they could have an empty shelf. Um, Mm. And for the... And they will be ruthless if it doesn't sell. Yeah, absolutely, of course, and they're right to. Yeah. and, uh, you know, these supermarkets are kind of 15, 20, 30 percent of of the entire retail sector. Um, but they want distinctiveness. So it's how do you strike that balance? But the question in some ways is, are the retailers, because, you know, like you, I've met a lot of these brands that are that are suddenly catapulted into retail without probably the, the foundations in place. Mm. Do you think the retailers are giving them the support they need to... To, to, to make that transition? Because you say, suddenly go, here's a nice brand, you know, you're a Sainsbury's 100, you know, go. Mm. Do you do you think they're being set up to fail or do you think it's... I don't think, if I'm being brutal, I don't think it's the retailer's responsibility to make sure that the brand is set up for scale. I think it's the brand owner's responsibility. And there's and an element of be, you don't know what you don't yeah, know. They shouldn't be seduced. To if some degree, really. they should just they should just make sure that they got their ship in order before going into a major retailer. Mm-hmm. It's really It really is kind of that simple, but... You don't know what you don't know when you've mm. never done it before. And that's why Young Foodies exists, because sometimes it's blatantly obvious if you've done it, but you just need to learn. And sometimes you can learn in a safe environment, like in an independent, but going into 100 Sainsbury stores when you don't really know what that looks like can also become an incredibly costly mistake that can mm. um, destroy you. So, so, destroy so you. what will Young Foodies do? Uh, give us a couple of examples of the, of the people you're working with at the moment. Yeah, so we, we almost do whatever that, specific business and specific founder needs so the way we look at every business um is almost in a growth phase so you have growth phase one which is just getting started all the way up to growth phase seven which is probably upwards of 30 million in turnover at that point you are in international markets you're probably in every major retailer and most distribution points in the uk um and your needs at every phase are incredibly different And depending on your phase, you might also have very different profiles as a business. So a founder in phase two, which might be in one major retailer, might choose a more brand led route, whereas another founder might go for a white label route. And those for those different brands will work with them very differently. Our principle is about finding economies of scale for challenger brands, about enabling them and empowering their growth. Um, so that they don't have to wear every hat. They just choose which hat to wear and then we we wear the rest. Mm. Um, and, and also you've got a great network of people there too. So it's not just about how you can help them. There's other people am- amongst the young foodie, you know, sort of community, if you like, who, who can share stories and hopefully help, help you learn yeah. from their mistakes. <laughs> exactly. It's a huge part of it is, you know, if you really think about as a startup, what makes you, what makes you, better and able to outcompete your big chat your big kind of blue chip counterparts it's your agility it's your speed it's your innovation what makes you struggle against them it's your economies of scale often your networks you have empty dropbox folders that you don't really know what to fill them with you are 
learning about barcodes for the first time, you're going international for the first time. Um, and actually, now we have a network of a thousand brands who someone has done everything. Um, so when you go to do your first international expansion, you just post on the network and someone will come back with a, something helpful. Mm. And it's almost the water cooler chat that you just don't get when you're in a small business. It can be very lonely to run your own business. Um, so can anybody join Young Foodies or is there sort of, you know, is there sort of a, a gate that you have to go through in order to be so, part of that? Yeah, to join the, the scale-up community, you have to have a turnover of above £250,000. Um, that's a kind of annualised run rate. Mm. So what that practically means is you've proven traction. Um, you probably at that point are in a multi-site operator of sorts. Um Beyond that, it's FMCG, and there is a kind of, to be honest, to get to 250,000, you have to have a bit of a challenger mentality. Mm. Um, but beyond that, it's anyone that is open to support and support others. And who wouldn't be? You hope. <laughs> and who wouldn't? But no, be? I think the food the food world is particularly good at this. I think yeah, because you know there yeah. are there are some parallels that run across whatever sector you're in, which is. You know, the stuff that Holly was touching on about sustainability, about quality of sourcing, about, you know, we're, you know, they're all trying to take out someone bigger. You know, there is a sort of sense of like, come on, we're all in this community yeah, together. And absolutely. so I think there is that. But there's that. And that, to be honest, has always existed, uh, at least kind of informally. So you might have a chat with someone at a trade show or you might support someone on Facebook or whatever it might be. But what hasn't happened so much is the formal uh, or the formalization of that kind of support and centralization so what we do is we practically do work for them we practically run their supply chains we practically process their orders we have a recruitment and people team who operate as that central function for the brands who practically hire their teams and advise them on hr so it's taking that kind of informal knowledge sharing and, and everyday support and turning it into that plus practical service delivery. Mm. Which is what is needed. Yeah, totally. Well, fascinating. If you're in that category uh, of, um, you know, you've, you've started off, you're doing quite well, you've passed that quarter million turnover, uh, then we will put links on to Young Foodies. But, but it's um, a bit of a no-brainer, I would suggest. I, th I think so too. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're all agreed on that then. <laughs> it's tough, isn't it, Ollie? So so you need as much support as you can get. You I mean, totally why, why would you be an expert on barcodes or, 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 you know, logistics is hard. Even, you know, if you're making great products, it's, it's all the rest you've got to get right. Totally. And I think we also exist in a world where everything is changing. You know, if you look at the digital landscape, you know, I work for a legacy publisher that, you know, ultimately is, is, is focused on digital, you know, and, and the world and the way that is changing is is so extraordinary hmm. and, and and you know the fact is that's true in every single thing we do you know so whether it's communication whether it's logistics whether it's you know what, what the benchmark and sustainability is i mean it, it is such a complicated world we operate in that i think to try and do this stuff alone is is, quite, is impossible it's quite hard well you've been listening to the food talk show uh, we could talk for ages on this we could uh we're syndicated to radio stations across the UK and further afield, as well as being available on Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, iTunes and the podcast app on your phone. Thank you to my fellow presenter, Ollie Lloyd. That's interesting, wasn't it, Ollie? Welcome, very interesting. Mm. I think I'm probably, I'd be quite glad I wasn't in FMCG now, if, if I were you. It's, it's pretty cut. Well, no, no, in terms of the very big brands like Unilever, because it's, it's tough for them at the moment. I think they're being chipped away at all the time. I Don't go into another... Massive discussion because no, we've run think, out of time, no. but but it, it's hard, isn't it? Don't you think? 
I think yeah, they're being challenged I, all over the place. And I think it's an interesting challenge for us to get some more of those guys on, on you know, on the show and talk to them about actually, okay. the way they're responding. Because I think it is interesting because they are becoming more agile. And, well, they've got to. They've got to. Really. Um, and also thank you to Holly Shackleton, um, editor of Speciality Food Magazine. Thank you, Holly. Thank you. Pleasure. Don't forget, you need to go on to um, Eaton app and, and put your I recommendations on there. I'll do. Um, if you want to recommend any future guests, someone doing something groundbreaking in the food sector, just like Jiho Park of Eaton and Theodora Alexander of Young Foodies, please get in touch with us via Twitter on at Food Talk Show. Or if you want to listen to any of our hundreds of podcasts, go to foodtalk.co.uk or, of course, on the Speciality Food magazine website where we're on the front page, where we deserve to be. Of course. Um, uh, so um, I hope you enjoyed the programme and do have a good week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 